Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. We're going to pivot next week and begin to look at that second part that Mary has introduced us to already this morning where we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we have one word left over, still in the first part of the Shema, and we're going to depend on our friends at the Bible Project to explain what that word means. And just as they do, I encourage you to go to the Bible Project. There are many, many resources there and lots of great videos. And these ones have been a lot of fun, I think, to watch and to learn. And uh, this last one is sort of surprising. So I invite you to learn about the last word in the first part of the Shema. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the last word, strength. The Hebrew word is ma'od, and it occurs some 300 times in the scriptures, and it doesn't actually mean strength. There is a perfectly good word for strength in Hebrew, and ma'od is not it. In fact, the Shema is one of the only places in the whole Bible where ma'od is translated as strength. So, what's up with that? The most common meaning of ma'od is very or much. It's what grammar nerds call an adverb, a word that comes alongside other words to augment their meaning. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at the world that he's made and six times he calls it good, but then the climactic seventh time he says it is ma'od good, that is, very good. Later in Genesis, in the story of Noah, the flood waters keep rising and they become ma'od powerful or extremely powerful over the land. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain wasn't just angry at his brother, he was ma'od angry. Or when Saul became the king of Israel, he was ma'od happy. So you can see why ma'od occurs hundreds of times in the Bible. It's a really common Hebrew word that intensifies the meaning of other words. Very this, or really that. However, biblical authors could use ma'od in ways that are unique. Like when they want to increase a word's force to total capacity, they'll say ma'od twice. So Jacob became ma'od ma'od wealthy with flocks and camels and donkeys and servants. Or the Israelite spies went to investigate the promised land and they say, the land we pass through is ma'od ma'od good. So it's pretty clear, ma'od doesn't mean strength in terms of muscle power, but rather very or much. So let's come back to the Shema, where people are called to love God with all of their heart, that is their will and affections, and with all of their soul, that is their whole life and physical being, and with all of their ma'od, that is with all of their muchness. And while that sounds kind of funny, you also kind of get it. If ma'od can intensify any word's meaning to total capacity, then this final thing that you use to love God isn't a thing at all. It's actually everything. Loving God with your ma'od means devoting every possibility, opportunity, and capacity that you have to honoring God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the most wide and expansive word in the Shema. Ma'od can refer to almost anything. Which raises one last and really fascinating point. Because this word was capable of many nuances of meaning, ancient Jewish communities interpreted ma'od in the Shema in different ways. So the ancient Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they came to ma'od in the Shema, they translated it with the Greek word 
dunamis, that is, power or strength. This is the interpretation adopted by most modern translations. But if you look at the ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, you'll discover that these scholars interpreted ma'od to mean wealth. Money is a concrete thing that opens up all kinds of opportunities to love God by giving away resources. And when Jesus was asked about the most important command in scripture, he quoted the Shema. And he used two words to unpack the meaning of ma'od. He said, love God with all of your mind and with all of your power. Both are human capacities that can be used to love God in an infinite number of ways. So which of these interpretations of ma'od is right? Does it mean strength or wealth or mind? That's the wrong question. The word ma'od doesn't limit the number of ways you can show love for God, just the opposite. The point is that everything in a person's life, every moment and every opportunity, every ability and capacity offers a chance to love and honor the one who made you. It's a call to love God with all of your muchness. And that's the meaning of strength in the Shema. <clears throat> so let me ask you a question. Are you proud to be a Canadian? I am. Um, Canada is a unique country. And it's very interesting as, as I have traveled in various other places, many times I'm given the advice of putting um, a maple leaf on my pack or my sweater or something like that. And uh, the reason for that is that when people see the Canada flag or see the maple leaf, the, they associate uh, that flag with several things. Mostly I, I think I hear people's comments on Canada by saying Canadians are kind. They're nice. And that's probably the you know, highest compliment and, and maybe one of the greatest challenges that we have. We're just nice. We really are nice. And we're not the sort of people who are over the top. There are other cultures and actually the culture I'm from, the Irish culture, is not always um, what we would say even-tempered or steady. We might be called over-the-top. Um, we maybe exaggerate a bit. We, we maybe react a little bit too much. And what I want to talk to you about today is the fact that we're, we're actually called to be those kinds of people, not to be Canadian kinds of people. We're, we're really called to be people who are over-the-top, I don't know if you can think back to people in your life whom you would call over the top, where they have made a mark. Um, they can't just be in a room without being noticed. They can't be in your life without upsetting things or exciting things or whatever it is. Uh, I remember a, a great little friend uh, called Calvin Dadian, and, and Calvin in Toronto was a missionary um, among Arab peoples in various expressions um, and he used to go and just hang out in places where people from Middle Eastern countries um, would have coffee together and that sort of thing and he would always drag me along if he could and it, it, it was always something that caused me just a little bit of anxiety because I was never quite sure what we get into if we were going to spend some time together. So Calvin, um, notoriously with me, would introduce me as soon as we got into the coffee shop. And the coffee shop, so if, if you know the Danforth, the Danforth has all kinds of restaurants, Greek restaurants, every kind of Middle Eastern restaurant and 
Um, usually there are sort of downstairs or back rooms or whatever it is, and little groups of people hang out. Little groups of people hang out and smoke things and maybe do things that they ought not to do. Kelvin would also um, just tell me not to worry and just go with him. And I would try not to worry as he would take me down a back staircase into a dark little room. But um, he enthusiastically would always introduce me by saying, this is the Hoja's Hoja. And that means I was the holy man's holy man. So he was the holy man, and I was his hoja, I was his holy man. And I was always impressed because Calvin always commanded the attention of the people in those little coffee rooms, whatever they were. He had their respect. And I, I think in, in some measure, the way that he had their respect was he came with a level of enthusiasm that, that made you notice. And uh, he, he was just a tremendous person he has since gone home to be with the Lord but I remember him well and I remember often thinking to myself that Calvin was definitely an over-the-top kind of a guy I think he exemplifies what this adverb is describing in the way that we should love God we should love God over the top is really what it's saying I, I want to just to to fill out the whole story of the Shema uh, come to another version of the Shema in the New Testament. As Mary said, there are three places in the Gospels where an interaction is described um, that has to do with the question, what is the greatest commandment? And it probably is identifying the fact that this conversation happened more than once. So the conversation that led to the story about the Good Samaritan may be a different conversation that was held elsewhere, in which somebody else had come and engaged Jesus and had come with the question, what is the greatest commandment? And if you were a Jewish scholar or if you were wanting to be a faithful Jewish follower in the New Testament times, you really wanted to know what is the most important thing. And behind that, we could ask, what, what is the thing that we should be over the top with? I mean, what is the thing? that is so important that anything else would pale in, in comparison to it. And in each of these conversations, that question was asked either um, with a sincere, inquisitive mind or with a challenging mind. And one of the times that the question is asked introduces just a little different twist um, to Jesus' version of the Shema or the version of the Shema that was talked about. So let me read to you from Mark. So we've been in the Luke 10 version of the conversation. And here we have it in Mark chapter 12. And we're told about a scribe who comes. And here's what we find out. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well. So this person had come and happened into and was sort of eavesdropping on one of these conversations between scribes and Pharisees and Jesus that were always animated and always were trying to put him to the test. And this person recognized that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? So there's the question. Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment greater than these. So once again, we hear this familiar answer and we hear the twinning of the two kinds of love about which we should be over the top, the love of God and the love of neighbor. So we should be the Calvins with the love of God and the love of neighbors. And um, I, I hope that you will enthusiastically join the ARC project. I think it'll be fun, but I think it'll also call us to maybe be a little uncomfortable as Canadians, maybe to do things that are surprising to others, shocking to others, or, or maybe um, just come as something that, that actually makes people stop and think and ask, why did he do that? Why did she do that? At any rate, back to the, the conversation, because the way it proceeds is what interests me, is I want to just sort of be, be complete in this whole thing. So we have taken pains to listen to the Bible project and to meditate on the actual words of the Shema. And so in, in this conversation that Jesus had with the scribe, watch for just a subtle little twist and how that changes, if it does, the conversation. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and that there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Think, wait a minute. Let's just slow down a little bit. This guy says what Jesus said, but it isn't quite what Jesus said. Jesus had used the full, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, um, but what this person says is you're right when you say, which he didn't quite say, but you're right when you say that you should um, love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. He uses the word understanding to mean soul and mind. He replaces soul and mind with the word understanding. And it's not one of the two words, it's another word. It's a new word. And it's a word that we hadn't encountered before and it wasn't used in the other conversations around the Shema in the life of Jesus. So what did it mean? It's a lovely word and um, as, as we think about it, hear what Jesus, when he answers the scribe, hear how Jesus um, evaluates or scores his answer, uh, because the scribe has said, good for you, teacher, well spoken, you're right in saying this, and then, but he doesn't quite say what Jesus said, so how is Jesus, is, is Jesus going to correct him? Is Jesus going to say, wait a minute, you've just asked me what is the most important commandment, and when I told you the answer, you've changed it as though that was what I said. But what Jesus does say is this. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. No correction. In fact, Jesus seems to endorse this interpretation of the Shema. So it helps us understand that all of this, um, it, it fills out. Um, each version sort of informs the other version. 
That, that's actually a good way to understand the synoptic gospels as, as we understand them because they are looking at the same situations from different perspectives. And so some people have said, well, you know, there's proof that the Bible's not a, a true book because they contradict each other. And yet if you go through and look at the comparison, you will say they don't contradict each other as much as complement each other. They bring new light, different light, or different perspective. And I think this is an example of that, um, where Jesus is saying, yeah, um, you've answered intelligently. I'm not going to take you to task for using this new word, because the way that you've used this new word is actually quite helpful as well. So what does it mean? What is the word understanding? What is that all about? It's a word that means sort of um, bringing together. It's, it's the process of, of gathering things, gathering thoughts, gathering um, premises and, and sorting them all out and, and kind of coming to a summary or, or, or kind of coming to um, a paraphrase. Uh, in in the Qumran, um, some of the uh, literature that we have describes how you got to be a member of the Qumran community. The Qumran community were a community maybe of John the Baptist disciples, maybe Essene followers, but they lived in the caves. And, and so the the Qumran is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and they described this community, this kind of, monastic community really that has pulled away from the religious life and, and certainly the political life of, of Israel. And part of the material that we have from them um, is a, a set of questions, a, a kind of a, a guide about how you got to be a member of the community. And they use this word. And they use it to really describe what we might call a comprehensive examination. If you wanted to be part of the Qumran community, you had to go through a whole set of questions and you had to prove yourself. And so there's the term. It's, it's the pulling together everything that is pertinent into something that is succinct, something that is complete. Um, I get to be someone on the other side now of what I was once part of on the receiving end, which is I get to say whether people should be ordained or not in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And it's rather arrogant to think that any one of us has the right to say if someone should or should not. Um, But it's always interesting because it makes me rethink. Um, I'm called to help them to rethink. And so as, as we've done this over the last number of years, it's fun um, because, you know, there, there's usually someone who is there trying to trip up the applicant or, or the, the ordinant. Um, and there's someone who always just wants to say, yes, that's right, that's fine. Uh, I'll give you a, l- a little clue. I, I, Brian is one of the guys, Brian O'Gorman, that you know who's part of this whole process too. Guess which one is Brian? Is Brian going to try to trip somebody up or is he going to slap him on the back and say, you're right, that's good, that, that's wonderful. There need to be the Brians and there need to be the me's. Um, 
which is I'd like to find some way to trip somebody up, right? But but that's the whole the whole process. It's it's saying um, another way that that the word could be translated is the word self-aware. It's to say that that everything has come together, everything makes sense, everything is logical, and the person is approved in some way or another. So I, I want to come back to this this notion that I said earlier in the service we would which is the notion of a comprehensive exam. I gave you a comprehensive test on the Shema Yisrael. Um, let me take you back to where I went to school, to high school, and try to just explain how this word, this, this notion, can actually be an appropriate paraphrase of the other words that, that Jesus used, but now excuses this person to use a new word. A comprehensive exam is what? A comprehensive exam is one that reaches back to everything you're supposed to have learned. So that's why we have ordination councils. Um, You're required to reach back and somebody is able to just sort of poke and ask, what about this or what about that? And we do that in many, many disciplines. We do that in law, we do that in medicine, we do that in accounting, we do that in business, we do it in in many arenas of life. And all of them with different components um, are suited towards a comprehensive assessment of somebody and, and something. So at the end of the day, um, the examiners or whoever it is would be would be nodding their heads and saying, "Okay, this this person is approved." I always hated comprehensive exams. The other kind of exam was an exam that would take place maybe after one particular chapter or one particular facet of sub of the subject so all, all you had to do was again i'll show you my cards all you had to do was cram so if i knew that the test was going to be on such and such a chapter or such and such a part of the whole curriculum i would just cram on that i i've already told you before i try to borrow my friend's notes from class i would try to look at other um versions of the exam that were I didn't do that inappropriately always they were out there so that you could have a look and prepare yourself but but it was always comforting to me to think all I have to do is remember this little part of it and so a comprehensive exam was something that reached way back to all of the things that you learned so in Ireland in in my grammar school they never had exams that were only about what you've learned this term or only what you've learned um, you know in this little piece you had to you had to reflect that you had learned everything that the whole course was about it all rolled forward and so you had to come you couldn't you couldn't cram because you couldn't cram that much you needed to really have understood it to be able to represent your learning and that, I think, is an important commitment. And it, 
it informs what this word means when it says that, that the way that we love God and then by implication the way that we love our neighbors is a comprehensive commitment. It, it's, it's something that, that gathers everything together. And the love of God and the love of neighbor is actually a comprehensive conclusion of all of Christian history and all of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Um, it all comes down to this. This is a proper reflection on the exam paper that doesn't just pick on a piece of our um, Christian ethics or morality. It encompasses everything that we've learned. And that's the muchness that I think is being referred to, that we're to love God and we're to love our neighbor with a muchness. It, it's, it's something that is not narrow. It's something that is incredibly filled um, with what we've committed ourselves to, the things that we've thought about, the things that we have wondered about. And as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, it's good for us to actually come back to the Shema Israel and say, in what way is this a comprehensive commitment of Christianity? And in what way, whichever other piece of the subject we're applying, in what way does that fulfill this commandment? So we might have gone off on one particular track and said, you know, we're having a debate over what the theology of this is or what the truth is about this or that. It will not have been a proper representation of our learning and developing if we only answer that small part of the question. The answer must always be seen in the light of loving God and loving one another. And that's enormous. That means that whether we're right or wrong, that means whether we decide A or B, the end of the discussion is not the conclusion to A or B. The end of the discussion is that being the case, how is that a way that we love God and love one another? And if we cannot see that that is the forensic evidence of Christianity, we're missing what Jesus said. We're missing what every one of these conversations was which said, um, we're trying to discern what is the greatest commandment. And Jesus says, well, what do you think? What, what does the law tell you? Hmm. And they say to Jesus, what do you think? What does the law tell you? And they all come together and say, everything else aside, it is loving God and loving our neighbors that is what matters. At the end of our Christian lives, It'll not be whether we were right or wrong on any department of theology. So in my world, that's, you know, in matters of eschatology where we struggle with, well, what are the end times going to be like? How do you know what happens first and then what happens after that? Um, they'll not be in, in the realm of, in churches, what, what's the right thing about gender, what's the right thing about anything in the church? At the end of the questions, what is the right thing, is the question, what's the loving thing? And, and that's not to, to dispense with the search for truth or what's right, but it's to say everything 
if it is not couched in love, has missed what Jesus said was the most important thing that we should do. We should be over the top with loving God and loving our neighbors. We should be enthusiastic. We should give our whole strength to this. We should give our whole ode to this, that this is what really matters. At the end of today, at the end of this week, at the end of the pandemic, at the end of our ARC project, um, is the question, well, where was love in all of that? How, how did love affect what we were doing or what we were thinking? And another thing I will just rec- recollect for you in, in conclusion from, from my high school. And I, I love my high school. It was called Su- Sullivan Upper Secondary School in Hollywood, Northern Ireland. You can still go look on their website and the buildings are still there. All of the things that were there when I was part of that school are. And strangely now in Canada, I have bumped into Sullivan Upper graduates all over the place. And just by the way, Rory McElroy also went to Sullivan Upper, so yeah, just saying. Um, Every Thursday, uh, there was a notice board at Sullivan Upper. And the notice board was the list of the people who were to be dressed for the rugby game on Saturday. And there were several rugby teams, depending on your age, that went from the under-15s to the medallion to the first 15 and the second 15 and so on. And, And again, even today, you can go and see how Sullivan is doing. And actually, it's one of the top eight grammar schools in the country um, for rugby. And on on every occasion that I went to that notice board on Thursdays, it was to look for um, my name on the list of people who were to be dressed. That means that I was to come to the school either for a home game or to come to get onto the bus. And I had to have my togs with me um, prepared to wear them for the game. If I was part of the team um, and not in the 15 that were to be dressed, uh, I would still go to the games and would sit and be a spectator. And every now and then, I guess they would call for substitutes. But rugby is the kind of game you don't need too many substitutes. They're just tough players, all of them, right? Do you know, do you know the thing that mattered most to me in that week, every week? It was on the medallion team list would I find my name. And that consumed my head. I I don't actually remember thinking about very much. I I remember worrying about exams. I remember where my classes were. I remember some of the stuff we did. But more vividly than anything else, I remember looking to see whether I was going to have my name on the medallion list that Saturday to be dressed. It was all consuming, is what I'm saying. Calvin was a person who was consumed with his calling, and he was over the top. I was over the top over playing rugby. I was over the top of coming home with mud-soaked togs, where I had taken a few tackles into the mud and was proudly carrying them home 
um, to have my mom wash them so I could get ready, hoping to be on the medallion list for the following week. It consumed my thinking. It was the thing that was top of mind. It, it made everything else not matter. Um, if, if I wasn't going to be on the team playing that week, I, I don't know what else would be important for me in that week, because that's what I lived for. That's what this word means. It means that, that we let everything else get sorted into the right order from what's important. And it means being over the top with the thing that is most important, that is top of mind for us. Jesus said, do you want to know what it all comes down to? Loving God and loving your neighbor. The scribe said, that's a great answer. You said that. Um, you said that we are to love God with all the heart and the understanding and the strength. And Jesus didn't say, no, that's not quite what I said. Jesus reflected on that and saw that it was an intelligent answer. And he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that you're on the right track. When you get that in your mind as the uppermost thing, you're well on your way towards understanding what it means to be in a relationship with God. You're on your way towards religion not being sacrifices and offerings because they're not what counts. It's the love of God and the love of neighbor that really matter. So we need to come down to that and say, in the heat of what I am consumed with, how is the love of God or the love of neighbor informing how I feel, how I decide, and what I do. And if the answer is, well, hmm, no, I don't think that those are characteristic of the love of God or of neighbor, then no matter how right they are, they don't matter. Because they are not what needs to be top of mind. So let us be as un-Canadian as to be extravagant, and to go over the top, and say we will be radical in our discipleship, in our following Christ, in our love of God and our love of neighbor. Let's put this into practice as we enter into the art project and see how can we make sure that every day of Lent is a day in which we express our love of God and love of neighbor. Will you join us?